Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, we'll take the U.S. citizenship test with the Center for New Americans and with Gary Winter, originally from Jamaica, who recently passed the test and will become a U.S. citizen on the old courthouse lawn in Northampton tomorrow on the 4th of July. And Mr. Universe Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid recovering from how awesome that Wes Anderson movie was on how a gamma ray burst could be the end of us all. But first... Hang on, hang on tight. Thursday, July 6th at Treehouse Brewing Company in South Deerfield. An evening with They Might Be Giants. And joining us from the iconic band that's celebrating 40 years as a band, They Might Be Giants, is one of the Johns, John Flansburg, who along with John Linnella's They Might Be Giants have released 23 studio albums. Their album Flood has been certified platinum. Their children's music albums, Here Come the ABCs, Here Come the 123s, Here Come Science, have all been certified gold. The duo has been nominated for four Grammy Awards, winning two. Uh, this is a, a little bit of an aside, John Flansburg, but I believe I was present when you actually received your first Grammy. Now, not at the Grammy Awards ceremony, because you don't get to keep that Grammy. That's what a lot of people don't know. The, the actual Grammy is delivered to you later. And on May 25th, 2002, at a concert at my old radio station at the Boston Hatch Shell with Patti Smith and Suzanne Vega... You were delivered a box with a Grammy in it, and what I thought was oh, the wow. was the coolest. That's wild. The gr- yeah, I have, uh, I have, I still have the box and the packaging that it came in. That's what I wanted to is- talk about because I tried to get from you the packaging because it was so cool that the foam was cut out in the shape of a Grammy, and I was like, I don't want your Grammy, but can I have your foam? <laughs> Oh, well, I, I, you'll be happy to know that uh, I was, wasn't was just like walking out of the room and then throwing the foam in the garbage. I still, I still have the foam. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's really an interesting and strange sort of object to uh, have in your life. Tape the halves of the foam together, then you can cast your own Grammys and yes. give them away as you want. I love this. <laughs> Absolutely. A foam, foam. Grammys Grammy. for all my friends. Exactly. <laughs> like make it more egalitarian. For those who don't know They Might Be Giants as well as Khalees and I do, because we are, you know, you have been a musical touchstone of all, not quite the 40 years of your existence as a band, but certainly for me, at least 30 of those years. You know, I remember hearing you on Tiny Tunes on television. I remember being in the seventh grade and playing in the high school marching band because I was big enough to carry a bass drum and, and march and all the seniors were playing me, you know, your great early albums. People associate you with Brooklyn, but you actually got your start in, in Massachusetts. Tell us your origin story, John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. Well, like a lot of kids, John and I both went to school mm-hmm. and uh, we went to school together in uh, Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is just like uh to the west of Boston, about Wait, twenty no. miles. I went to I went to elementary school in Lincoln. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was in the Mecco Sweet. program, and I went to Lincoln Hartwell. <laughs> really? Yes, that's, really. <laughs> that's I'm. That's amazing. I, I didn't. Wow. I remember that program. That was actually you know that was happening when when I was a kid. Yeah. Um. That's remarkable. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Hartwell was a super sweet little place, and John and I, we were a year apart, so, you know, which might as well have been, you know, 15 years to kids, but when we actually got to high school, we worked on the high school newspaper together, and we kind of ran with a clique of people. I was actually in a band with uh, Dan Spock, who uh, was Dr. Spock, Benjamin Spock's grandson, and, uh, you know, we, are, we had a, a shared sensibility even in that band, so, like, there was... It was kind of like, they were really formative years for both me and John. We saw a lot of rock shows together. 
and had a lot of shared musical experiences. And then in my college years, John was already in a band from that in Rhode Island that was sort of angling to make it big. They moved to New York right as I was moving to New York to go to the Pratt Institute and study fine arts. And that was it was in that extremely rundown building in Park Slope that now is considered luxury housing yeah, yeah. that uh, we, we formed we formed the band. Where did the accordion come from? It's well, not you know, your typical like the, instrument to the, bring the, into a rock band. I don't think we were that concerned about like how rocking we were looking. <laughs> we actually, you know, we were a duo. Right from the jump, we were doing a lot of shows in Manhattan, but we weren't really making any money and we didn't have much money. So we, we're, we were always trying to figure out if we could get to the shows on the subway. While like there was this like visual aspect of the accordion that was like, seemed very fresh at the time and sort of exceptional. Uh, there also was this practical thing about just having a portable instrument. And the accordion is a great instrument for a duo because I was playing the guitar and singing and John was playing the accordion and singing. And we could both kind of comp chords or play lines and switch back and forth. And since we were both singing that we could have a lot of harmony and a lot of doubled vocals and backing vocals and stuff. So it was like, it was just, it just helped kind of amplify the versatility of the band. We held on to the, the, the versatility of having a full-size keyboard. We're speaking with John Flansberg of They Might Be Giants, who will be celebrating their 40th anniversary musically with an evening with They Might Be Giants at Treehouse Brewing on Thursday, July 6th. John Flansberg, is it true that your first uh, not named as They Might Be Giants show was a Sandinista rally? It was. We were a bunch of communists. <laughs> and your name for the for the band for that show was not yet They Might Be Giants. What was it? Do you, do you recall? I pledged to not reveal that name, so oh. I'm not going to uh, okay. discuss it. But will you discuss, for people hear the name They Might Be Giants, and I remember the first time I, I heard that as a band name, it, it is an interesting structure for the name of a band. Where does the name They Might Be Giants come from? Well, it's like a lot of band names. It's actually the name of, a, of an art film. Late 60s, early 70s film that's has a very interesting premise and then kind of spins out in the third act in the way that a lot of, of uh, movies of that era do. It's not a great movie, <laughs> but it, was just, it, it, it just seemed like an interesting name for a band. You know, like, um, to be perfectly honest, one of the gigs we knew we would actually have as a band was playing at, at CBGB. If you were playing during the weekdays, they made a point of making all the band names exactly the same size. They kept to the one point size throughout the week. So if you had a really short name, you, you could you were barely visible. If you had a really long name, you might even be on your own line. Yeah. So uh, smart. There there was a, a that was probably the smallest amount of calculation that we had was <laughs> that it would it would show up really good in the CBGB ad, which was one of the few places that actually advertised in the East Village. We came up. And it's very unusual scene in the mid 80s in the East Village, which was really on fire culturally in New York City uh, with a lot of super transgressive stuff, like a lot of very druggy things, a lot of hyper sexualized things and us for some reason. <laughs> um, but uh, it was really a time, you know, I, I think, any, you know, if, if, if anyone goes through kind of being part of a, of a scene, you kind of know what's happening around you. And there were other bands that came out of that moment, like Sonic Youth. It was really a hell of a lot of fun. 
It's interesting because you don't think of sonically Sonic Youth and they might be giants in the same sentence in the same scene, but Sonic yeah, we never shared a build with them. We did shows with Swans and we did a show with I don't know if I I, I can I will say B Hole Surfers. Oh right, uh, um, it is public uh, radio after all. Yes, I know. I mean, actually, I don't, I don't know what you can say. On I think radio we can anymore. we can say butthole surfers. Okay, you're welcome, public radio listeners of Western Massachusetts. Also, it's just yes. the name of an actual band with real singles. Yes. Yeah, it's Let's not our it fault they called that. This kind of juvenile humor is what has always attracted me to your band, uh, John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants, where you know I learned many things as a child, like what is a palindrome. I Um, mm-hmm. But more besides, like, if there's always history lessons, like the James K. Polk song. He was James K. Polk, of the yeah. The James Ensor song. Me, James Ensor, Belgium's famous painter. Other songs about his people in history who aren't named James. Well, very early on, we had to do a show. On our very first tour, we were contracted to do a show in Norfolk, Virginia, at a place called the King's Head Inn. There's a big military presence in that town, and they have a lot of bars where I think there's a lot of heavy drinking going on. And the contract for the show actually said we had to perform two hours of non-repeating music, which was, and coming from the East Village, we were used to playing 20 minutes of non-repeating music, and nobody ever particularly wanted any longer sets. It was all very sensationalistic, you know, hit and split kind of stuff. So all of a sudden we were sort of faced with this... um, thing of having to play every song we knew and and add a lot of other songs. And so we actually learned a cover of this song that we had heard as kids called Why Is the Sunshine? The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace. Uh, it's from a record called Science Songs that, you know, growing up in Lincoln, Massachusetts, every bit of culture was this sort of vitamin enriched, let's make sure these kids get all the stuff, you know, that can make them grow in the most positive way. And so Space Songs was like this uh, early kind of baby boomer move to uh, take over folk music and make it educational. We did it in our show essentially as a, it was camp. It was a, it was something that like everyone knew that shape of a song, like a fact-based song, a list song. It was sort of just like a ponderous, slightly exhausting format for a song and then we just sort of picked up on that and started writing our own you know slightly exhausting fact-based list song (laughs) (laughs) including an update to better science to the why does the sun shine the sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma the sun's not simply made out of gas no Will you keep updating that song as we find out more things well, about the sun? I look for, I look forward to the, the third one. I mean, there's, there's stuff to correct in the second. The second one was very casually done, but it was sort of to answer, you know, the people in the scientific community, you know, God bless them, that they will do anything to, to knock their own point of view out of the conversation. And that was, uh, that was kind of how that went down. But I, I always know that the sun is... Uh... About 93 million miles away because of your song about a million Earths can fit inside, that it is not actually a mass of incandescent gas, but a miasma of incandescent plasma. I mean, that is the kind of value-based entertainment that John Flansburg and They Might Be Giants have provided for the world for all these years. Coming up, more with John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants on their Dial-A-Song project and on their forays into kids' music. 
You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Here's more with John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants playing a sold-out show in Deerfield at Treehouse this Thursday. But my friends, they don't understand the power of They Might Be Giants' dire song. And your call is next. Hi, this is John of They Might Be Giants. You know, a lot of people ask us, what was the first song on your first demo? Well... We like to say it was entitled, Now That I Have Everything. And then often they say, where can I hear this song that was the first song on your first demo? And we say, well, there's only one place. And that place has to be, they might be Giants Dial a Song Service. 25 hours a day, six days a week. Dial music at the end of the tunnel for a new generation. Brooklyn's Ambassadors of Love, they might be Giants, performing their very first song on their very first demo. And it was called, Now That I Have Everything. Coming up live on They Might Be Giants Dial a Song Service. Who came up with Dial a Song? And is Dial a Song still still running? Uh, well, there there are incarnations of Dial a Song that that exist. There's actually a, a an app, um, a They Might Be Giants app that is uh, free on your iPhone or or uh, Android phone. But, you know, I, I had the idea, I w- as a kid, I was really obsessed with sound. I, you know, I was really obsessed with tape recorders. I was really obsessed with radios. And I was really obsessed with headphones and, and anything that made sound. And, and the fact that there was, a, in Boston, there was a thing called Dial of Prayer, which was an outgoing message. And it's, I think it's very hard for people. I mean, of course, it's hard. For, we've lived with outgoing messages for so long. But there was a time when I was a child, where there was no such thing as outgoing messages. You you called a phone and a live person answered, and that was it, or you got a busy signal, but that was those were the only two things. But in Boston, and I guess this was for the, the housebound, they had dial a prayer where, like, you know, a, a, some priest would just recite a prayer at you on a, from, on a tape recorder, and I would call this thing up and just sort of bask in the weird glory of a, <laughs> of a sound recording working that way backwards. And then in the early 80s, in the kind of the crazy Eddie years of New York City, uh, with so many itinerant actors and, and people who had like crazy busy schedules, when the phone machine was introduced, it was just, it was like a fad. Like everybody had them. And there was even a period of time, like in 83, 82, 83, where, it, where the telephone company was claiming it was against the law to uh, use them, which was really odd. I mean, it was sort of, it seemed like sort of like tearing off that piece of paper on your mattress. You know, like, oh, yeah. how is this against the law? Like, is this really against the law? <laughs> like, what am I doing that's so wrong with like tearing this thing up? <laughs> But we actually knew somebody in the East Village who was getting court legal action from the from the phone company brought against him for having one, which was really, really odd. And they really picked the wrong guy because he was a real WBAI lefty. And he was just like, you know, he was he was original Antifa. And he was not having he was not having it. So I thought I thought of it. It was it was something that just like I I probably thought of like you know a couple of years earlier. And when we finally got around to doing it, uh, it almost seemed like an old idea. And I don't think we knew how long we would end up 
committing to the idea, but it was something that immediately took off. And what was nice about it is that it introduced the band in such a mysterious way. Like most of the ways people hear about bands or, or experience bands are almost sort of standardized. You know, you have to do, you have to go here, you have to do this, you have to do that. And having the dial song was like this really nice way left of center way to, to introduce people to what we were doing. It just, it, you know, a lot of people I think thought of more as like almost like a performance art experience than uh, just like a regular musical. Act. You made a conscious transition to stop making music that was always good for kids, <laughs> but then specifically making music branded as being for kids. Why did that transition happen? Well, like, you know, we left Electra after 10 glorious years on that major label, and a lot of things suddenly shook loose. I mean, that was, I think if you look at the sort of calendar year of like 1999, 2000, that was when we did the theme for the daily. We did all the music for the daily show. We did the opening song in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. We did, I'm trying to think of the other sort of notable things that we did. I'm not going to hold the Mickey Mouse Club theme song against you. Oh, no, that's 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 fine. There's no, there's the no. The theme uh, song is know. great. The show I have problems with. But anyway, continue. Hey, man, you know, if you <laughs> want to talk about Disney as a corporation, <laughs> let's uh, flip this over to the business part we'll, of it. We'll uh, talk back to the Sandinistas <laughs> and the communist thing again. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, the minute we were sort of, uh, you know, free of our major label. I mean, there's that. What's that expression like? If if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. I think if you're a major, if you were a major label in the 20th century, everything had to look like a radio hit. And if you weren't really, if everybody wasn't all rowing in the same direction towards that radio hit to mix the metaphor, you really weren't participating in in like the only conversation. Of course, there was a world of people who were interested in our music and they were interested in collaborating with us. And we started just doing all this kind of outside work. And one of the things that came over the transom was an offer to do a standalone kids album. And I think when we did the first one, we were doing we were doing incidental music for Malcolm in the Middle, and we recorded all the songs at the end of the sessions for the kid the, our first kids album, which was called No. Like a lot of work product that is like the the kind of comes out of that like we're off duty now. There was um, <laughs> feeling there was like a joyousness to the album that just was really pervasive, and. Um, I think we assumed that it would be the album would be received kind of the same way like a a holiday record would be received or like a you know just some sort of specialty one off like oh they're never doing this again but instead it uh I mean it sold like you know over 100,000 copies in the first year in in like at a time when the music business was like totally imploding so it was just bizarre how how popular it was and it was showing up at like borders and places we had never sold records before and and everything about it was just kind of this fluky hit and it just it just created a whole parallel career for us without much work i mean we didn't really tour to support it we never we've done very few children's shows children's shows by the way are incredibly frustrating (laughs) you know all all i can say is is like school teachers should, should get all every school teacher's pay should be doubled. It is the most thankless task <laughs> to try to entertain children. They're they're the most ungrateful they're, audience. They're so I love playing for drunks. Drunks out there, I love you. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on clapping and screaming along. It's awesome. Speaking of drunks, Treehouse Brewery yeah. is where the Giants will be performing their 
40th anniversary show in South Deerfield on I Thursday, not July 6th. I should anyway be proud of you for that segue, but somehow I am. Oh, that was Appreciate beautiful. that, Khalees. Thank you. Uh, it was a thing of art. Right. So tell us a little bit about what this tour is going to be like. You're with your Triceratops horns, which continues to add to the awesome science nerdery of everything they might be giants, John Flansburg. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we just finished... Right as COVID was starting, we embarked on doing this flood tour because we didn't have a new project out. And we booked like 80 shows and all the so- shows sold out, which was um, kind of glorious. And then and then COVID hit. And uh, then we were just thinking, are we going to have to cancel 80 shows nationwide and basically alienate our entire audience uh across the united states because you know canceling shows is a very destructive thing for a band and so i'm really glad that we actually somehow managed to reschedule and reschedule all these shows but one of the nice things side effects of having them all be sold out is that we we knew that we could kind of afford to expand the show so we brought in these great horn players they're all ringers and uh there's an element of musicality to uh, the way the horns are incorporated into the show that really feels cohesive to me. I, I've seen a lot of shows and I'm a snob and and I have to say like most of the time when rock bands add horns, it's it's kind of a mistake. That's not what's happening with us. I mean, I think there's actually a, a very interesting set of uh, ways of approaching how to arrange a song with a rock combo with the horns well plus you've um, used in horns in a lot of your albums too already so it's like the the framework is already there you're not really stepping too far off of oh that. yeah and we're sort of taking advantage of being able to present those specialty kind of songs in their full glory live and that's something that we've never been able to do before so except maybe in new york like we've done horn shows in new york we've always had this element uh, sort of in motion, but it was just something we never been able to tour with until now. But we'll be doing songs from Flood. We'll be doing songs from our, our Grammy losing album book, and um, uh, you know, we'll I, be doing a whole and, a whole bunch I'm, of things. I'm going to say how much I love book, like from the get go, oh, like the opening track um, synopsis for latecomers. For everyone who only just arrived, might be my new favorite. There might be giant songs. It, it, we open our show with that song often, and um, it goes over really well. It's one of those songs that it, it, it sort of, every now and then, you know, you, you have a song in your show that you realize, like, just it, people can appreciate it on first listen, which is a really nice quality. Like, you, you, the theater of that song is, is really good. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Khalees and I both were music DJs before we started uh, this talk show relatively recently. We came from a radio station that played They Might Be Giants very frequently uh, in Northampton, WRSI, and it was one of the launching pads for, uh, we were going to have him join us as a special guest today, but he's on a plane right now for a show called Spare the Rock, Spoil Spoil the the Child, Child, which was music for kids and their grownups. Bill Child. He's our good friend, and uh, he begins, not only do you do the theme song for that now nationally syndicated radio show, but you uh, he begins and ends every single show with a They Might Be Giants song. And it's not just from the kids' albums, it's from the breadth and depth of the They Might Be Giants catalog, which now spans 40 years. God bless him. You know, I have to say, like, you know, it's it's like the consistent support of people like him that, that uh, you know, make They Might Be Giants the, uh, the Burl Ives of the 21st century. <laughs> Yeah. 
you can experience the Burl Ives of the 21st <laughs> century who has gone all 23 and, years into this century I'm gonna and 20 say, years previous. I'm going to say, if that's previous. the case, one of you, one of you two Johns is going to have to work a little harder on your beard. Yeah. The, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants, who along with John Linnell have released 23 albums, are celebrating 40 years of the band, and you can celebrate with them at Treehouse Brewing Company in South Deerfield on Thursday, July 6th, an evening with They Might Be Giants. It's been a delight talking with you, Mr. Flansburg. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. It's our Thanks pleasure. for joining us. Well, good luck with your show. Yeah. It sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. We're having fun. I'm going like, to brag uh, to my high school roommate who just literally got me indoctrinated in your very early catalog. That's not a humble brag. That's a real brag. <laughs> but it's also fun to be like, if you had talked to 13-year-old me, I would have been like, oh, my God, I get to talk to John from They Might Be Giants today. And then I can tell my 18, 13, and 10-year-old kids now, I'm talking to They right. Might Be Giants, and they're as psyched as I would have yep. been then. So it's really fun. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. My partner's well, real psyched that yeah. I'm here today. So anyway. Yeah. Well, have a great day, you guys. Thank you, you so much for having me. I do appreciate it. You too. Our pleasure. All right. Shout out to and happy belated birthday to Bill Childs of Spare the Rock. Spoil the child. Which you can still hear on Valley Free Radio and on WRSI. But we're listening to NEPM right now. And soon we'll be celebrating the 4th of July with an almost continental American who will become a U.S. citizen at a ceremony in Northampton tomorrow. And up next, Gamma Ray Bursts with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Kitchen Table Astronomy with Hampshire College Astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe here in Amherst. When I was in seventh grade, I had a great idea that I was going to do my science project on phrenology, which is the study of feeling people's heads to try to tell different traits about them. And then my science teacher, to their credit, was saying, this is discredited as a scientific endeavor. You may not do phrenology as your science project. You... We're in a similar, but definitely more scientific conundrum when you were wanting to study gamma rays for your thesis. Gamma rays, what are they and why are they cool? Gamma rays themselves are just sort of like form of light, the high energy, you know, higher than x-rays, for example. But what I wanted to study were gamma ray bursts. Uh-huh. And this actually sounds cool, and it is cool. But here is the story. This year marks the 50th anniversary when a paper came out that said that U.S. spy satellites had detected some gamma ray bursts whose origins we don't know. Mm. Just to back up a little, in the 1960s, the U.S. and Soviet Union at that time had signed a nuclear test ban treaty. So U.S. had some Vila satellites. Hi, I'm Bob Vila. Detecting whether Soviet Union is violating the test ban treaty or not. And when you test a nuclear bomb, you emit gamma rays. So this was meant to detect gamma rays from the Earth. They did not detect any. But in 1967, I think it was Vila, 4, Vila 3 and Vila 4. Hi, I'm Norm Abram. Kevin O'Connor. They started detecting gamma ray bursts, but those were not from the Earth. Not from the Earth, 
from space. Good thing, because it could have started a nuclear war if they were getting these <laughs> tests of gamma ray bursts and then saying, oh, the Soviets are doing it. Sure. So they kept on detecting those, and they had no clue what it was. And But in 1973, a paper got published in an astronomical journal that said, hey, we have detected a few hundred of these gamma ray bursts. We have no clue what those are. All we can say is that this is not coming from the Earth. It's coming from somewhere else. Up in the 90s, so I was doing my undergraduate at the time in the early 1990s, and the nature of gamma ray bursts was still completely unclear. Now, a new satellite went up. It was called Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, and it was considered that it's going to immediately solve the gamma ray problem. Uh -huh. So one idea was that, well, if we look at the distribution of these gamma ray bursts, if they follow sort of like this disk-like distribution, then they're coming from something that is in the Milky Way galaxy. But what astronomers found when they detected with Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, actually they detected about a few thousand, 3,000 or so gamma ray bursts roughly, and they were distributed everywhere, isotropically. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, either they are very close. So meaning to say maybe they are solar system objects, maybe something going on with comets or something like that. So we see a spherical distribution rather than following the Milky Way. Or they are so, so, so far away that we see them distributed all over the universe. But then what that implies is if we are detecting them, they're really energetic. And we did not know if there can be any objects that can produce such high energy objects because if they are located billions of light years away. Mm -hmm. So two very different ideas. And that's where Monty, the, the thesis question or the undergraduate question comes in. My hunch was, and it was a hunch because we didn't really know, that they are billions of light years away because it's cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> whatever those are, you know, they're coming from far away. But we didn't know. Uh, there were over a hundred theoretical models and one of those groups is going to turn out to be completely wrong. <laughs> if you're doing your thesis on the completely wrong one, that's a lot of work for not. It shouldn't be the case, but I did chicken out. I didn't do my project, my science fair project on phrenology. I did it on male pattern baldness. Because <laughs> even in seventh grade, I knew that genetically I would lose my hair almost guaranteed, but I thought I would delve into it more scientifically. And uh, my theory was... Correct. I don't have hair. <laughs> That's great, but I chickened out. I wasn't sure about the baldness bit, yeah. so I was like, you I'll still stick have a good with head of hair. <laughs> so the idea was that you have to get some other information other than gamma rays. The mystery was all you see is this burst, this sudden burst, very short-lived, but only in gamma rays. But it must be in some other light, and it was very hard to follow up because they last, they just go out. So the question was, can we find some follow-up observations in some other light? And that happened in 1997. There was uh, a satellite called BepoSax. It was an X-ray, Italian X-ray satellite. And so that clinched the case that these are not part of the solar system. But in fact, these are associated with galaxies billions of light years away. So you would have been right. I would have been right. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, but it could have been wrong too. <laughs> and, the, and, and trust me, there were people who turned out to be completely wrong. So this is a beautiful example of things that we didn't know looked really cool. But today we don't talk about the theory that would turn out to be completely wrong. In fact, now we talk about various types of gamma ray bursts and what we know about them. Why do these gamma ray bursts happen? If they are billions of light years away, then they must be one of the most energetic events in the universe. This is not just a supernova. So a supernova happens when a star that is bigger than our sun, 10 times, 20 times, and when it explodes, it ends its life. And for a brief period of time, 
the star, the brightness of a star outshines the entire galaxy. And it lasts for a few weeks uh, in that brightness. And our sun is not going to become supernova, but we know the stars exist that are bigger than that and that's what happens. Gamma ray bursts are produced by stars that are even bigger than that. And uh, when they die, it's called a hypernova. And what happens is that, that the star is turning into a black hole. And what happens is that the material, when it collapses, co going close to the black hole, it turns into two jets because of high magnetic fields. And those jets can be hundreds of light years big. That's what the astronomers think what happens is that the star is collapsing into a black hole. But as it is collapsing, as it is forming into a black hole, some of the material forms into these jets and they are ejected, a lot of it in gamma rays. If you happen to be looking at in the direction of that jet, you are going to see a gamma ray burst. So these are some of the craziest explosions, craziest things. So there was one in, I think, 2008. This was a huge gamma ray burst. It lasted for about 30 seconds and it was visible if you were looking up in the sky. Okay, I mean, it would be pretty faint, but it was a visible part of the spectrum, sort of like, you know, your naked eye. You could have seen it, something pop up for about 30 seconds, very faint. And then just uh, in uh, last year, uh, there was another gamma ray burst, which is now dubbed as, you know, sometimes astronomers come up with these names, like, you know, go like, whoa, now credit to them. Okay. And it was called the boat, the brightest of all time. <laughs> the Tom Brady of gamma rays. <laughs> That's right. And so, uh, that, uh, so that actually lasted, <clears throat> uh, uh, it was an unusual one because it lasted a few hours. This was coming from about two, and a, two, about two and a half billion light years away. Because it's relatively close by, two and a half billion light years away, they think that this is a great laboratory to actually start to understand what these bursts are. But I think the next question that comes in, what if it happens close to the Earth? Yeah. We don't have to worry about it because these gamma ray bursts, even though I'm talking about jets pointing towards the earth and their gamma rays, they are quite far away. But if they were in the Milky Way galaxy, say, for example, 5,000, 10,000 light years away, which you do have some stars that are really big that can produce gamma ray bursts. Um, yeah, that may be a little bit of a problem. If it is pointing towards the earth, that jet, they think that it's going to really damage the ozone layer. Wow. And that would lead to a lot of ultraviolet light coming down to the earth, leading to sort of like extinction of some animals. And for humans, of course, like, you know, cancer and all of that stuff that comes in. So it's not the Hollywood scene where we are going to be obliterated, evaporated. No, it's going to be a little bit slower. Uh, and some people think that there have been mass extinctions. Of course, we know there have been multiple mass extinctions. The one that killed the dinosaurs was by asteroid or a comet. But they think that statistically, there might be one of the mass extinctions in the history of the Earth may have been by a gamma ray burst happening in the Milky Way galaxy. They think that the mass extinction that happened 450 million years ago, they think it might have been that, partly because the trilobites like, you know, those little yeah. critters, they actually survived it. And they think that because they were under the water, but it's very, very hard to pin blame on that. Nevertheless, if something like this happens, like the one that 2008 one, that was visible barely to the naked eye, even though it was seven and a half billion light years away, if it happened about 10,000 light years away, it would be as bright as the sun. And that's just crazy. 
And then the slow process towards our inevitable extinction would begin. That's right. But again... <laughs> Something to look forward to. But again, it happens very rarely. And also, you have to be just unlucky enough to be in the, in the zone of its beam or the direction of the jet. But hey, you know... And again, I would say, Monty, we've talked about it. Everybody's going to go. We're going to go. So the earth is going to go. The sun is going to go. Wouldn't it be cool to go... <laughs> Being sort of like, you know, hey, yeah, well, we went because we just happened to be in the direction of the gamma ray jet that was coming out of a star that exploded and was turning into a black hole. And it just happened to be pointing to the Earth. And that's why we got extinct. I think that's a great story to tell. And then you could be like, hey, I studied those in college. <laughs> I was like into this way before you all. <laughs> Come on, I mean, it's better than the heat death we're lurching towards, oh, I yeah. feel like. Right, that would be more fun. Up next, Lori Millman from the Center for New Americans who helped guide, helps guide immigrants through the process of becoming U.S. citizens and who are hosting a naturalization ceremony on the 4th of July in Northampton. She'll administer the U.S. citizenship test to us, and I hope I do better than I did at reading that. No, you'll do fine. I don't know. We'll also be joined by Gary Winter, originally from Jamaica, who recently passed the test and will become a U.S. citizen tomorrow. Yay! In Northampton, you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413, and we're talking about young Americans, or at least (laughs) new Americans, with the Center for New Americans Executive Director, Lori Millman, who tomorrow will host for the 15th time a naturalization ceremony in the old courthouse salon right in the main intersection in downtown Northampton. And one of those new Americans who's worked with the Center for New Americans joins us in the studio originally from Jamaica, Gary Winter. Thank you to you both. And congratulations to you, Gary. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you for having us. And one small correction. It's going to rain tomorrow, so we'll actually be in the courtroom. So usually we have a giant event with 400 community members. It's going to be a little small this year, unfortunately. I've been to it. It's really wonderful to witness. I've been to it, too, and it really is something special. Like, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of areas where the United States is rife for critique. (laughs) Uh, But in my opinion... Some of them happened this weekend. Yeah, so in my opinion, it's really beautiful to see somebody who believes in the idea of the American experiment so much that they want to come to this country and become a U.S. citizen, and that's sad that it's going to rain on our parade tomorrow, but it's a beautiful indoor court. That's a glorious indoor space, too. You feel like you're in a courtroom drama. Yeah. (laughs) Will there still be, like, the national anthem and things like that? Will still, Evelyn Harris will still sing. We'll still have a DJ with celebratory music. We've got balloons and food, and the League of Women Voters will be there to register people to vote. So Tell Evelyn that Khalees says hi. And Monty. All right, we'll (laughs) we'll tell Evelyn. (laughs) Gary... First, tell us your story. What brought you from Jamaica to here to Western Mass? Well, um, I was really and actually brought here by my siblings. Uh-huh. Um, ten, actually. When you were ten, ten years old? No. Ten siblings. Ten siblings. Oh, ten yeah, siblings. No, yes. no, I got, I got that. <laughs> they, they lived here before me uh-huh. and would do everything to have me come in here. Oh. It are they is, all here? Yeah, they are here. All ten of them. All ten of them, Whoa. and and their children. Are they all in Western Mass? No, 
that's why I'm getting to um they they are living in Bridgeport, ah, Connecticut. Okay. Cool. Yes. So um they wanted me to come here even more than how I wanted to come. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. So they they did everything to force me out of Jamaica. <laughs> Do you regret that decision, Gary, or do you feel comfortable with not, all this? Not for a second. Okay, good. I'm not for a hear. second. Um, as I mentioned before, that um, they even went to the point of buying a house and renovating it to welcome me here. That's amazing. And when was that? When did you make it here? 21st of December, 2016. So that seems like a relatively short period of time from what I I know of between you coming here in 2016. And actually, no, that seems about average. That's seven years. I did bad math in my head. Yeah. Thinking five, five some years from the time you get a green card. Yeah, I was right. I was imagining it was like twenty twenty one, but then we we all lost two years. So mm-hmm. this is about on schedule. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you've had to do is pass a citizenship test, which according to the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, only one and three Americans would pass the citizenship test. So in some ways, you are more knowledgeable than 66 and two-thirds percent of your peers probably now that you are going to be a U.S. citizen because you have passed this test, right? Sounds good. Thank you for that information. <laughs> um, Use it to your advantage wherever you go. Yeah, if anybody I, gives I, you a hard time, I you ask been, them these questions. I have questions. been doing that, and I will continue. <laughs> I will continue. Yes. Now, Lori, um, you've been on my show previous, my previous show, many times before this ceremony, which, as we mentioned, is... And is, on this show once before. And once before, too. Um, and on the 4th of July show, you always give me the citizenship test to see if I can maintain my citizenship for another year. There are a hundred questions that you would need to have learned about U.S. government and civics and history. And by rights, um, we should um, examine Americans, you know, right to continue their citizenship if they can't answer these questions. So especially if two-thirds of them won't get it. Question number 37 for you. What does the judicial branch do? It judicious. (laughs) In English, please. it adjudicates. <laughs> it it uh, it rules on the law. It does not make the law. It does not execute the law. It rules on whether this law or that law is constitutional. Right, exactly. It you, decides if a law goes against the Constitution. Use laws. One yes. correct. You want to ask one to Khalees now? I, I would too? give you. I would give you. Um, Eight out of ten for that. Eight out of ten. What would you say? (laughs) What would you say, Gary? New U.S. citizen to be tomorrow on the Fourth of July. How would you explain it better? I have already passed my test. (laughs) (laughs) We, on the other hand, question number ninety-three. Name one state that borders Mexico. Uh, We have. Arizona and California and Texas and New Mexico. Very good. Don't show off. You have to name one. She's showing off. She's showing off. Uh, that's yeah. okay. All right. ten, out, <laughs> ten out of ten for that. Yeah. Thank you. Gary, right. tell us what else apart from this test that we'll continue to take. Gary uh, says I'm doing better than you. That's right. <laughs> Fine. Big surprise. Uh, tell us what else you've had to do to become a citizen. I mean, there's a, all sorts of rhetoric that we hear in the news about, like, people are coming to this country and they're taking our jobs and it's everybody's getting free health care and free places to live. Tell us what you've actually had to do apart from this test over the last seven years to, to, to gain access to U.S. citizenship. Um... One thing for sure, they are going to do a background check to make sure that um, 
you have not been breaking the law, mm-hmm. so to speak. In Either way. here or from where you're originally from? Um, especially here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they, I think based on the information um, that they asked for, they might go back home to do some checks. Mm-hmm. But um, especially for here, that's one of the main things you want to maintain, a clean record to yep. become a citizen here. And Lori, there's been a new development as of this past weekend that I'm sure is affecting the work that you're doing with the Center for New Americans in the sense that um, there are people in this country, regardless of their citizenship status, can now um, get a driver's license in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, tell us how that has affected the students that you're working with, teaching them English, teaching them civics, you know, helping well, them with job applications and things. Yeah, people are very excited. Obviously, you're talking about the driver's license bill in Massachusetts. And the, that's that was the Work and Family Mobility Act. And our students lobbied um, vociferously for that. You know that we have our local Western Mass delegation visit classes every year. And every one of our reps and state senators heard from our students how important that that bill is. We don't have robust public transportation in Western Mass. It's very hard to get to your job without having a driver's license. And I think everyone agreed that this was a wise move, public safety-wise and just economically. And we're all very excited. I feel like that's true for anywhere that's not like a major, major metropolis. Like there's just not, we have done a disservice to our public uh, transportation systems kind of across the country. And so being able to do that here is such yeah. an empowering move. Yeah, It was interesting to see how many law enforcement officials were supporting this bill, right. uh, especially in Western Mass, even right. early on, including the district attorney, uh, police chiefs uh, right. across because the gamut. Because you want people to have valid driver's license mm-hmm. and, and insurance. It, it just and this makes it work possible. for them, too. Yes, yes, <laughs> agree. We're speaking with Lori Millman, the executive director of the Center for New Americans and New American. Gary Winter from Jamaica, who will be officially sworn in inside the old courthouse in downtown Northampton tomorrow and what is always a, a heartwarming and, and beautiful ceremony. Gary, what's something you're looking forward to doing as a U.S. citizen now that you weren't able to do before? Um, of course, there are some things, but one of the main things is to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it, 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 it gives you a different feeling, I think. You know, and I think when you have exercise your democratic right in that way, it, it, it brings you to another point where you have a say. You get to participate in the decisions that are being made. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's wonderful. And I think far too many people who are born with citizenship don't take advantage. Take that for granted. Lori Millman, in order to maintain my U.S. citizenship, let's hear another question from the citizenship quiz, which you, Gary, have already passed. They ask, you have 10 questions, and you've got to get a 60. You've got to get 6 out of 10, correct, yes. right? You got uh, all 6 right away. Yes, okay. sir. So, so here's a softball. Okay. What are two ways that Americans can participate in their democracy? Well, I'm voting. No, <laughs> or, no. or overturning are, the government you, after oh, you don't like the other. other actual... No, I'm saying not you. Not oh, you. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, voting. <laughs> no help from me. Um, we'll strike the whole January 6th idea from the record. Um, what about uh, running for office? Yeah. As well? Or joining uh, a political party? How did I do, Gary? Helping with a campaign? Do uh, I get 100% on that one? No. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I think you take too long to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are tough. I had no idea. I know. Wow, good thing you didn't give me the test. <laughs> What's one of the questions that you got asked in or, on your test? And then this can be Kalisa's question. One of the questions that I was asked... Um, 
If it's already, I think you've taken too long to answer there, Gary. I'm afraid I'm going to put No, I'm trying to find the hardest one. I'm trying to figure the hardest one. But um, she, I think she would have already asked. The first one that she asked was um, I I don't want that one. Weren't you asked about a war? What was one of the wars? Yeah, what was one of the war fought in the 1800s? In, in fought in the 1800s? Yes, ma'am. So we had the War of 1812. There's the... No, that's earlier. And then the Civil War. All right, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ten ten out of ten. Full marks for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From Gary, at least. I have to start at the beginning and then yeah. go through the rest. Um, I was going to ask if you were... I didn't realize you were in, in Bridgeport and the, your your reach, Laurie, is much wider than I initially thought. But no, I'm, is, I'm living in Springfield. Oh, you're living no. in Springfield. Yes, your, your I'm living yeah. in Bridgeport. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, we're so just this, Western this Mass. Mm. Who's got the best Jamaican food in town? I do. Okay. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the Are you answer, sharing? But no, when and, you're tired. And I am, I am very serious about that. Uh, no, I know you're I'm, serious. I'm actually happy that I'm on the air. This will be broadcasted. <laughs> and I can, can defend, over yeah, I can defend that any minute. You're more than welcome. Okay. I need oxtails and butter beans and spinners because nobody makes them. You're more than welcome. Okay. I love it. <laughs> One more question, Lori Millman, before we uh, wrap it up for the 4th of July here. What movement tried to end racial discrimination? Civil rights movement. There have been several, but yeah, that would be one of them. So right? say one. The she said one. You'll say one. <laughs> well, there several. was an abolitionist <laughs> movement in the early yeah. part of the... Well, that's you know, early. It's not considered an actual political movement. The answer to civil rights movement. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's not considered an actual political movement that, that day. Anyway. Anyway. Um, <laughs> it was important, though. I am hard. You are hard, <laughs> Greater, but you deserve everything that's coming to you with your new citizenship. Very Gary good. Winter, who has requested this Bob Marley song. Uh, who's a, it's a gift from us to you for uh, becoming a U.S. <laughs> citizen. Congratulations. And Lori Millman from the Center for New Americans who works with immigrants to this country and will be hosting a naturalization ceremony tomorrow that's open to as many people as can squeeze into the old courthouse uh, right in downtown Northampton. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. For the 4th of July, the fabulous 413 is going to celebrate the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness musically. We'll have performances recorded live at the Green River Music Festival, including a woman breaking racial and cultural barriers and country music, Miko Marks. And a Venezuelan refugee who plays traditional Yarena harp music. And Yanera harp music, thank you. And who is teamed up with a bluegrass artist from North Carolina, live music from the Green River Festival from Larry and Joe. Plus, the Performance Project's first generation section with a special and a special cocktail Thunderdome will punch things up with Sean Bilson from Gateway City Arts. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. We will see you after the 4th of July. Have a good holiday, everybody. 